Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Zosha Stemplowska. Zosha is a professor of political theory at the University of Oxford. Now, ever since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February this year, a common explanation that is put forth by a number of different commentators and analysts, the explanation for a key driver of Russia's actions being the expansion of NATO eastwards since the breakdown of the Soviet Union. And I actually had a great discussion about this with Professor Paul Post in episode number 73. So listeners, feel free to go back to that one if this is also something that's interesting to you. Zosha has also written an article about this that I will link to in the show notes. And I'm really looking forward to having an opportunity to dive a bit deeper into this issue into this explanation that's often put forward and have a bit of a discussion about it. So thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today, Zosha. Thank you for having me again. And I should say I did listen to your other podcasts on this and I was grateful for them. Thanks, Zosha. Yeah, and it's great to have you back. Of course, we also have a previous episode with Zosha and Avia Pasternak talking about whether sanctions on Russia are justified. I can't remember 100% at the moment which number it is, possibly 69 or so, but listeners can go back and have a look for that if they'd like to. So first of all, I mean, this is an explanation that I think most people would be quite familiar with by now, but could you first just briefly outline what are we talking about when I say the NATO expansion explanation as a driver for Russia's actions? Yes. So some people put forward this idea that NATO is partly to blame for this invasion of Ukraine by Russia because NATO acted wrongly in accepting new members right up to the borders with Russia and in not ruling out or not ruling out decisively enough future Ukrainian membership in NATO. And They say that because Russia saw this enlargement of NATO as a threat to its security, this fear manifested itself partly in this invasion of Ukraine. And for some, Russia is seen as worried about its legitimate interests. So for them, NATO's enlargement is seen as a sort of provocation. But there is a more subtle version of this argument as well. So some people say... Well, yes, Russia's fears about NATO's enlargement were groundless in that NATO never threatened any of Russia's legitimate interests. But NATO was reckless when it enlarged and not recognized that Russia would use NATO's presence in the region as an excuse to invade. So there are these two versions of the argument. In one, NATO's enlargement is a provocation, Mm. and in the other one, it's reckless. Now, to be clear, neither version is meant to justify the aggression. The aggression is wrong. But people say in these narratives, NATO shares at least some of the blame. Mm -hmm. Whilst I can see that it is quite possible that actors in Russia felt threatened or vulnerable or uncomfortable with the way in which more and more countries that used to be within the Soviet Union were now joining the NATO alliance, there does seem to be something kind of problematic about sort of framing that up as this more general idea that really it's it's somehow NATO's fault. So do you see some 
merits to that explanation? And do you also see some things as being problematic about it? Yeah, so actually the question about merits is really good because I think that the blame NATO arguments do fundamentally reveal lack of knowledge of the region. I actually understand why some people in the US and the UK or elsewhere are looking to blame NATO. It really doesn't mean to me that they're simply just parroting Russia's propaganda, which of course is the key proponent of the blame NATO argument. So insofar as the merit of it goes, I think first that blaming NATO does offer people quite a comforting illusion of control. We can tell ourselves, if only NATO didn't enlarge, we would not be in this situation. And if only now we listen to Russia, and when I say Russia, I mean the ruling elite of Russia, all of this would go away. Now, of course, we already sort of listened to Russia in 2014, if we were not in Ukraine, when it annexed Crimea, and that did not lead to lasting peace. But this illusion of control although it's dangerous when you're fighting a potentially lethal threat, is comforting. But there is also a second reason why we might think the blame NATO argument has some merit in it, and that's that, in a sense, it's good for those who are outside of Russia to look to self-criticize. And so insofar as people who put forward these arguments are motivated by this, so by the desire not to be uncritical about themselves, then that's a good motivation. And for those who want to blame someone outside of Russia, they shouldn't, when they're looking to self-criticize, be blaming NATO's enlargement because ultimately it ends up being dismissive of the claims of people who sought NATO's protection because they share a border with Russia. Mm -hmm. I find that first point really interesting that you were saying about that sort of illusion of control because it's oftentimes seemed to me that this argument when made by people in Western countries is almost like self-aggrandizing. Like it's almost saying like, well, we are responsible for actions that Putin himself is making or decisions made by the Russian regime. And whilst, again, I don't want to dismiss the fact that there may have been some perceptions of threat or insecurity in that regime and that of countries that are in the NATO alliance, I'm sure at some stages could have acted with more sensitivity and nuance in the situation. But there also seems something that's fundamentally taking away someone else's agency to say what I did kind of caused or completely drove your actions, almost like giving yourself too much control. I absolutely agree with this. So when I think about this argument, I think that there are two things that are problematic. And one of them is is that this argument just erodes the agency of the states that wanted to join NATO after the Soviet Union disintegrated. And they were released from their involuntary membership in the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact. And in fact, if we think about it, This argument of blaming NATO does make most sense if you're thinking of NATO's enlargement as some sort of expansionist or aggressive policy. But the enlargement of NATO was driven by the new member states, so the states that had previously been dominated, and the people in those states, and I'm Polish, by the way, Hmm. they understandably worried about the ongoing threat to their sovereignty that Russia continued to pose, both because it wasn't reforming quickly enough, And because it kept wanting to dictate to those nations in the region what they should or shouldn't do. And so overlooking this element of agency of these actors in the region is what has been called by some as a form of West planning the region, 
to those who are in it. So I think this term has been popularized by Jan Smolenski and Jan Dudkiewicz in a piece in the New Republic. And the idea was that they were listening to this narrative of NATO's expansion in which the desire by the states to join NATO didn't appear at all. But if we think, say, about Finland and Sweden just now wanting to join NATO, clearly we do see that they are driving the enlargement of NATO. And what's driving them is the decision about how best to protect themselves from the threat. And we also think that the people of Finland and of Sweden should have the right to decide about their foreign policy and then defensive policy. And just like the Ukrainians, they don't need Russia's approval about what that policy will be. Actually, in this context, I should maybe say that's why I keep talking about NATO's enlargement and not expansion. So I think maybe the linguistic ship has sailed and I'm a lonely person using that terminology. But the thought is that just as about the EU in Europe, we used to talk about the EU's enlargement and not expansion. If we keep emphasizing that this was driven by the new member states, then we see it wasn't a form of territorial expansion. It was a form of enlargement. Mm -hmm. So the other problematic feature of this blame NATO argument is that it just mischaracterizes what's going on in the region regarding how Russia is acting. Russia is, of course, saying NATO is a threatening presence in the region But in fact, Russia's Western borders with NATO members are the most peaceful and stable borders. And this is because it's Russia that destabilizes and invades, and NATO makes it harder for Russia to do it. And I can see how at that point someone might say, well, so why is Russia acting like this? If, as you say, it's not being threatened, then what's driving it unleashing the violence? And I think there are things that Russia is threatened by. They are just different to the ones that are stated. So first, I think it's threatened in its desire to remain an imperial power. So all states that were previously within the Soviet Union or part of the Warsaw Pact are subject to this. But I should say Ukraine is actually more subject to this threat because it's striking how the political elite of Russia denies often that Ukraine is even a nation and entitled to a separate state. But second, they're also threatened by the success stories of democratization right by the border with Russia. So Putin and his entourage is just threatened when the ex-Soviet republics start to offer their citizens something that's attractive, and part of a life in democracy, so prosperity and voice or control. Russia, of course, offers prosperity to many as well, but it comes with strings attached. And Russia sees that democratization may encourage others to seek this form of government at home. And we see that from when it first attacked Ukraine in 2014, having, of course, interfered in the country prior to that. And we see it for example, with the help it offered Belarus during the popular protests there. And we see it when we look at what type of causes Russia funds abroad that also undermine democracy. And in fact, both of these things reinforce each other. So sort of this desire for imperial grandeur is there partly to replace any desire that people might have for democracy. So you cannot offer people control and voice, so you have to offer them something else and that something else might be this imperial grandeur. And so Timothy Snyder, 
called the war against Ukraine a colonial war. And I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the argument that's also sometimes put forward, maybe less frequently, that even if those countries that were formerly in the Soviet Union really wanted to join NATO, which was the case, still somehow NATO had a responsibility to say, you know, we're not going to accept you in because that might be viewed as threatening by Russia. So that brings me to this argument that NATO's enlargement, even if it wasn't really a provocation, it was reckless, given what we know about how Russia might react. Mm -hmm. And Yeltsin, in fact, wanted some other peace force in Europe and some US politicians and commentators repeatedly pointed out that it would be humiliating for Russia to have NATO at its doorstep and that it would lead us more or less where we are now. So consider this argument, how it's supposed to work. So those commentators are saying that the states who wish to join NATO are saying to them, Yes, Russia wants to dictate what alliances you join, and it wants to do it because it's humiliated by its loss of influence over you. And yes, it will attack if you don't listen, so we won't let you in. Instead, we will trade with Russia, and you will see that your worries were misplaced, and all will be fine. Some analysts in the 90s were saying it, and some people are repeating this now. How is it less reckless to not enlarge to the Russian border when knowing that Russia lacks democratic traditions, that it can mobilize some of its population behind an imperialistic and nationalistic policies, and that it's not seriously reforming towards a democracy and the conditions of mass corruption. Though I should say that, of course, there were and are organizations and institutions in Russia that heroically are trying to oppose this, and we owe them our thanks, but as a whole, the country has not been and is not seriously reforming. So it's a sort of strange form of wishful thinking where all the risk is going to be carried by the people who have already suffered from being subjected to mm. Russian power. Just imagine that NATO didn't enlarge. Would we really be seeing fewer wars just now? Mm. Or would we be seeing the same amount or more amount of mm. violence being exercised as a way of mobilizing support for a vision of Russia that precludes democracy at home? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like in some ways, the implication of that whole argument that you outlined at the beginning is that if those countries had not joined NATO, if the ex sort of ex-Soviet Union countries had not joined NATO, we would not have seen any violent conflict in the region. And, you know, I guess that's an open question, but it doesn't necessarily seem that likely. So the states that were part of the Soviet Union and then after the breakdown, the Soviet Union were really quite keen to join NATO and did succeed in joining. Do you think that those states really thought that over time they could actually create friendly relations with Russia as a sort of a peaceful neighbour? Or do you think that they really continued to feel that a clear and present danger of some kind of territorial incursions from Russia if they were not a part of the NATO alliance? I think that the fact that Russia continued to be seen as a threat, even at this really hopeful time in the 90s, was not really because of the historical record. I think there was a readiness to accept this new reality. But I think it was simpler than that. It continued to act um, as it was entitled to dictate and dominate the region. Mm. So, of course, many people hoped 
that these were just some sort of post-Soviet Union spasm and that they will go away. And I think basically we cannot tell whether the descent into what Russia is now from that more hopeful time was always likely or was just one of the options. And from where we are now, we can see how difficult it was for democracy to grow when the mass corruption was continuing. And I've come to the conclusion that really that's just a guess that a decade is not enough. A decade or two decades is not enough to jump from being a country like the Soviet Union to a country that resembles a democracy. But I'm absolutely certain that at the time there were many people who were hoping that it would be enough and that the region would be transformed. But in any case, even if they were hoping for that, a sort of realistic assessment of the situation meant that those who thought that NATO's enlargement was reckless were really just pushing forcefully a line and were telling the states that border Russia to the West that they are simply not seeing that the safest course of action for them is not to seek NATO's protection, but to join some new organization, possibly where they would still be controlled by Russia. And that will bring us peace in the region. And I just don't think that even pro-Kremlin analysts in Russia believed that this would have been the best course of action for those states. People sometimes quote William Burns, the director of the CIA in this context. So in 2008, he very famously wrote that the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO is, he said, the, the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite. And so he went on to say how apparently there is no one in the Russia elite who doesn't view Ukraine's membership of NATO as a threat to Russia's interests. And this is always invoked to show that letting Ukraine enter NATO would have been reckless. But what I take from this is just how deep the denial that Ukraine is entitled to decide for itself that the sovereign state is ingrained into Russian politics. Mm-hmm. So I think only those who are not Ukrainian could have concluded that as a result, we must do what Russia say. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And certainly Ukrainians would have been very happy to be accepted into NATO. I mean, the support for it wasn't always very high throughout the last 30 decades. I don't want to make out like it was, but I think there are many, many Ukrainians who would be very happy to be accepted into NATO. So that's sort of something obviously to take into account as well, as you were saying, when we look at that piece of countries, preferences and agency. You mentioned their alternative pathways. And I'm wondering whether you think there are any points in history in the last few decades when policies could have been different or different decisions could have been made that might not have gotten us to this point where we're actually seeing large-scale violent conflict in a pretty horrific way that's currently ongoing? Yes, so this is such a great question for the world to learn how to answer what could have been done differently. So yes, one obvious thing for us is to think that maybe we should have reacted differently to Russia's previous exercises of power. So when it was bombing Syrians, or when it was invading Ukraine previously, or Georgia previously, Mm. or in similar cases, I think that fundamentally another thing that we have done wrongly, those who are outside of Russia, I mean, is that we have, in effect, enabled the corruption in Russia. 
and that in a tangible sense, this had led to the situation being as bad as it is. And so here I reference uh, work of my colleague, Leif Wenar. He has argued in Blood Oil that countries that buy goods from corrupt and abusive regimes are buying goods that are stolen from their populations that suffer under those regimes. And so those who trade with these corrupt dictators, um, as if they had the standing to sell the natural resources of the people of those country, are enabling the power of those corrupt dictators at home. The countries and the corporations that buy these natural resources on such terms and then build pipe networks to make it smoother and easier, even though they know what they're sustaining in Russia and what actions by Russia they are making more possible abroad, are encouraging this. And so I think that, yes, we can blame them for those actions and there are tangible things that could have been done to change them. So increase, for example, financial transparency of those actions. Some of those would have had to be coordinated, but some of those could have been taken unilaterally. I guess we also should not have allowed oligarchs to enjoy anything money can buy in various places outside of Russia. And it's harder to tell what impact this would have had on Putin's power, a hold on power. Um, but even if stopping them would not have prevented this war, not doing so probably did reduce opposition to Putin's terrible vision for Ukraine. And so ultimately, I think that focusing on NATO is uh, what NATO did or did not do is easy to argue about. Mm. And the hardest step would be to consider all the ways in which Putin and his regime have been enabled by always opting for buying cheaper energy from Russia, no matter the costs to those it then attacks. And in fact, the costs to the Russian citizens who are also caught up in this nightmare. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Zosha. I've really appreciated and I've found it very interesting to be able to have a bit of a deeper discussion around this explanation that is so often given and I've always felt a little uncomfortable about it. So it's satisfying for me on the podcast to have an opportunity to really discuss it in a bit more depth and really think about, does it make sense? What are the implications? Thanks again, Zosha. I appreciate you joining me again on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.